Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem... Get Brexit done. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. You know the drill, folks. Um, this is one of those special shows where I don't have the pundit team with me, it's just me and uh, an expert. And today's expert is Jane Jun, who's an American political scientist. Uh, she is from the University of Southern California, and um, she studies public opinion, public behavior, and is a survey methodologist. Is that correct, Jane? That is correct. The 2016 election came as a shock to many news watchers. Times Square has never been quieter right now. The day before the election, much of the media seemed to be convinced that a Hillary Clinton victory was imminent. You have to say advantage Clinton as we head into these final hours and this big national lead is why. And while the polls indicated that she was the favored candidate, we all know how that story ended. Now that we're approaching another election, both the Trump and Biden campaigns are playing on messages that the polling may not be accurate. So you may be thinking, how can we ever trust the polls again? Didn't they get 2016 wrong? Why should we believe the polls this time round? All of us left-leaning, right-thinking people are saying that Joe Biden's got a massive lead, did nine points up, Trump is dead in the water, but we thought something similar in 2016, didn't we? We sure did. And I just would like to make the distinction, a couple of distinctions, but the most important one with respect to 2016 is that the national polls were not wrong in as much as we're talking about the popular vote. Mm -hmm. So ordinarily, when you take a national poll, what you do is take a poll from representative of each state, but each state itself doesn't yield a representative sample. So if you were to look at the national polls altogether, and you're thinking about maybe a probability tracker that you might have added onto your phone to see what was the probability that Trump would lose and Clinton would win. Mostly the Trump would lose was, was in the single digits. But that wasn't wrong with respect to the national, the full popular vote, which as you know, Clinton won by about 3 million votes. But as is peculiar to the United States political system, the Electoral College and its votes are the thing that drive the 
actual outcome of the election. So in this case, of course, the popular vote was inconsistent. That is to say for Clinton, but it was inconsistent with the electoral college votes. And there were a number of states that were quite close that ended up going to Trump. So if you think about national polls overall, those were not too far off. They were in Mm -hmm. fact quite close. Uh, But the state polls, much harder to do state polls and to do them well. And that's because most organizations that do national polls are really interested in the the federal outcome of the entire United States versus states. Much harder to do states, especially when the outcomes are close. Okay. So first off, let's try and break this all down. Might sound like a really silly question, but who exactly votes? And then how do pollsters then model that for their surveys? Well, this is like the part where it's the sausage making. You know, so you can do a survey and you can ask people, are you registered to vote? Are you going to come out to vote? And who do you want to vote for? But that doesn't mean they've actually done it. They're not telling you the truth about who they want to vote for either. So you have to, the essence of what you're asking is how do you make the turnout model? So I can get some data and it'll be, let's say I've asked people, I'm not going to ask you any questions if you're not a registered voter and how likely are you to vote? And they'll tell me. And once I get that information, I don't release it just like that. As an analyst, whether you're working for an academic poll or more likely a media poll or one that's driven by a corporation or company of some kind for profit, you will analyze that poll by looking at the data and creating a turnout model. So you'll take some best guesses. And sometimes those best guesses are terrible, right? Sometimes you make the wrong guess and you say, in essence, who's going to turn out? And you look across the groups and you say, hmm. Do I think, let's say, African-Americans in Milwaukee or Detroit, these are the two locations um, in particular where analysts subsequently said, oh, it was the fault of these groups, which is obviously totally wrong. It was also the turnout models were wrong. And I think that that is those assumptions that are made about who's going to turn out. You never report data or usually you don't report data based simply on how people answer. That's what you're seeing now. But when you're going to do a turnout model, the closer you get to the election, the more you analyze and scrutinize it and weight it internally. So that is to say, if I think that I've got a whole lot of, um, let's say, 18 to 25-year-olds, they vote at a very low rate, but they've answered the survey at a higher rate at which they vote. If I leave them in like that, and we know they're Biden-leaning, then I will probably overestimate the proportion of the turnout for and the victory for Biden. So you have that is, I think, one of the things that very few people think about. We don't just take the data as it comes to us. You have to create a turnout model and run a turnout model based on assumptions about who's actually going to be uh, not only to turn out, but whose vote gets counted. So therein lies complications with, let's say, how states are allowing ballots to be turned in and how difficult it is for certain people to vote. So could you give us some rough breakdowns of the various constituencies of the American electorate and their rates, their general rates of voting. Right. So the people who vote the most are the most reliable, which is why you see ads during the time that these people are watching. Um, It's like a lot of drug ads. I mean, I don't mean like, you know, like fun drugs. I mean, like, you know, prescription (laughs) drugs that you take for blood pressure and stuff. Mm -hmm. Those are geared toward voters who are older. So in general, people who are 65 plus and then people who are 50 plus tend to be the most consistent and likely voters. They vote often, almost all the time, and they they vote at a very high level. That is to say the high proportion of them 
will turn out to vote. And in contrast, young people vote at a much lower rate, less than 50%. So people 30 and under tend to vote less and people 25 and under are the least likely to turn out. In addition to that, you see people with high levels of education. So that is to say college education and above being also more likely to vote. In addition to that, people who are strong partisans. So in other words, those who are registered with a specific party and consistently vote with that party. Those are the groups you see voting most. In addition, I'd like to add, I'm not sure if this is a well-known fact, but it should be, that women in the United States are much more consistent voters than our men. So if you go back and you think about, like, I believe now it's almost about 54% of the electorate is female in 2016, 53.6 or something like that. But this has always been the case, at least certainly for the last 50 or 60 years. So if you think back to 1964, who was the modal voter? So that is to say, who had the largest group in the electorate? Mm -hmm. You're going to say men, right? You're thinking like mad men, Don Draper, you know, with a, with a cigarette and the scotch in his hand and with his third hand grabbing his secretary. You know, you think like for sure men are the modal voter. Not so much. In fact, in 1964, the modal voter is really um, Don Draper's wife, Betty Draper. She was the modal voter. She's very much the modal voter today. She's a white woman. She's divorced. She's Republican. She lives in a suburb and she owns a gun. That's the modal voter today. The most likely voters are white women and black women. But because white women make up such a larger proportion of the um, overall population of the U.S., they're the most common voter in the voting pool. So I'll distinguish between who's more likely to vote as a function of a demographic group, but also thinking about just the large numbers of voters. African-Americans are among the highest turnout voters in the United States. That is less true for Latinx people and even less for Asian-Americans. But of those groups, um, the people who really are the biggest group in the electorate are white female voters. And as you know, white women have voted Republican by majority in every presidential election since 1952, with the exception of two years, 1964 and 1996. So Otherwise, white women are strong supporters of Republicans. What happened in the midterms? in 2018 then we we were told that this was a vote really driven by by women but uh the democrats came out on top it's possible that some of those women switched over and one of the things i was looking for before we began our conversation is how white college educated women are going um they're not moving that far into biden territory they're moving a little bit away from trump um, what you did see is a big movement toward Democrats in the 2018 midterms, but that's a non-presidential year. And you have to keep in mind that partisanship at the local level, so in other words, when you're voting for local candidates, there's a, a much wider variety of candidates available, and those candidates are, uh, can be less ideologically far apart. So I think that it's not only possible that you have conversion, so you have to remember that you can convert voters, Obama to Trump, and then maybe Trump to Biden. But the other thing that you have going on is the mobilization in the electorate. My guess is that we see a big surge in voting. And I think based on the data that we have, we could see that many more women of color voted in 2018. They truly came out strong mm -hmm. in 2018, as did Democratic women. So you have to know that women of color are not Republican. They do not support Trump. They do not support by large margins in the same way that white women do. 
every election is a brand new electorate. So it's not only a function of different rates of mobilization, but it's different types of people coming out to vote. There's an old maxim, isn't there, that generals always fight the last battle. And it's obviously that pollsters poll for the last election, at least they model for the last election, is really what you seem to be saying. One of the things which really struck me from what you said about the modal voter being this white suburban divorcee who owns a gun, it really then makes a lot of sense for uh, the Republican Party, at least Trump's uh, repeated pronouncements in the last two months talking about the suburbs being overrun by, in inverted commas, poor people. You're going to lose your suburbs. Mm-hmm. That obviously uh, Republican Party pollsters have exactly that woman in their crosshairs, don't they? You bet they do. And remember recently when he, 45 tweeted out something about suburban housewives? I ended the regulation that brought crime to the suburbs. And you're going to live the American dream. And that's what you're going to do. And I ended it. They said, sir, we can amend it. I said, no, I don't want to amend it. I want to end it. I ask you to do me a favor. Suburban women, will you please like me? Remember? Please. Please. I saved your damn neighborhood, okay? The other thing, I don't have that much time to be that nice. You know, I can do it, but I got to go quickly. Now, we saved your, you, we saved suburbia in the U.S. I got rid of a regulation that was a disaster, and it was very unfair, and you've been reading about it for a long time. It's been going on for a long time. It became much worse under Obama and Biden. I got rid of it, and I had a choice. My Even my own people said, you never get rid of it, sir. I said, I want to get rid of it. Well, why don't we just amend it? I said, I don't want to amend it. I want to get rid of it. Get rid of it. Okay, and I think we're going to see that the women really like Trump a lot. That's happened last time, remember? Remember last four years ago? Four years ago, they said, women will never vote for him. I said, why am I so bad? They said, the women will never vote. Then I got 52%. They said, what the hell happened with the women? Now, people on the left were horrified by that. They were like, oh my gosh, how can you call us suburban housewives? As if that was a term of derision. I think we should stop and think about why he did it. I'm not saying he's engaging in three-dimensional chess here. He's not. But he recognizes an audience when he sees one. So who are the most famous housewives right now on American television? They're the real housewives of Mm -hmm. New York, Atlanta, Beverly Hills, Dallas, wherever they are. It's a franchise based on the notion, many of these don't live in suburbs, but the idea of a suburban housewife is a woman who is taken care of by a man. Right? She doesn't have to work if she doesn't want to. She can go get her nails done, um, her collagen injections, everything else she needs to get done. And the main thing is she is a glamorous thing. Now, I know that sounds a little bizarre, but you have to think about it from the perspective of Republican uh, voters. That's actually something good to be a suburban housewife who is taken care of by her man, by her husband. And I don't see that as a message only for women. That's a message for men. The invocation of a suburban housewife is just a restatement of white patriarchy. And it's done so in, I'm not going to say a clever way, but in a way that is fully understanding of where the base of the Republican Party is. It's not just working class people like who live in West Virginia or something or trailer parks in North Carolina. These are suburban housewives in Phoenix, Los Angeles. They're everywhere and they're voting for Trump and they haven't moved one millimeter from where they were in 2016. So if they haven't moved one millimetre, 
And you're the political scientist. So I, I have to take it your word here. Though every bone in my body says surely they have, but what you want to believe, right? Uh, yeah, listen, want. exactly. Yeah, you know, it's a uh, prof. Whatever you say goes on, on this show, right? But let me just try and stress test that a little. Surely, in this election, we're going to have it's going to buck recent trends in that this is going to be a larger than normal turnout, of which. I suppose then other constituencies which naturally lead more democratic, i.e. younger voters, African-American and other non-white voting groups will vote at a slightly larger percentage, which then will go to nullify your modal uh, voter who is this white suburban woman. If that is the case, and one thing that Trump has done is to motivate um, not only his own base, but to motivate people who are instinctively opposed to him. Um, I don't think there's, there aren't too many Americans who are truly undecided in terms of um, what they think about Donald Trump. You know, this isn't a Obama and Romney election where you had a lot of people going, ah, I don't know. Whether people vote or not, everybody seems to have an opinion with, with this incumbent of the White House. Will that then go and then skew the next election cycles or subsequent modeling, because maybe this is an atypical election, which is going to get a lot of Americans to the voting booths. What a great question. There's so much involved in there. And I would say that each election is an atypical election. Each election has its own electorate, not only just as you mentioned, because what you're going to see is mobilization of other groups. So groups that may have sat out 16 thinking that she was that Hillary Clinton was going to win, so I don't need to get out there and do it. Right, or that they're just not that motivated by the candidate, or that they just didn't think that 45 is as bad as he actually turned out to be. All those things are true. But I uh, want to just note that, again, the electorate is unique with every election. And it's not just a question of persuading voters to be for one candidate or one party or another. It's also persuading them to even come out. So what you've identified is probably uh, the most likely thing that's going to happen is an increase in turnout among democratic groups. Mm -hmm. And the problem for the current president is that he has no capacity or has not shown any capacity to convert voters who would otherwise come out. I think it's possible that there is going to be some movement away from Trump among previous Trump voters, but more likely than that, they're not going to go to Biden. They're just not going to vote. And so we always have to keep in mind the two different variables at work here that create a brand new electorate every time. And that with every election, whether you're talking about 18 to 20, that's a new electorate. Some people have died. Other people have entered the electorate. New immigrants have become naturalized citizens. Others are you know, in a COVID war, so they can't vote. So my point is that it's possible that that will happen in this election. But I would very much like for analysts and for all of us, whether you're a scholar or not, to get away from the idea that American elections are continuous. And point of fact, they are not. I mean, we are in a realignment right now. It's like watching your kids grow up. You see them every day. And then one day you're like, how'd you get so tall? Right. And you got so tall. Like, how did these minority populations get so big? Well, they got so big after the 1965 Voting Rights Act and the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act. Those two federal laws changed the course of uh, U.S. politics to the point where Obama gets elected in 2008. Absent those two laws, that never would have happened we'd have continued to have the same types of presidents we'd had prior to that. So you have to consider like your invocation of like, mm, you know, is this bad? Because what we'll see is like, we'll analyze something from this year and then it won't be 
happening next year. I hope we get away from that. I hope we don't, we have to look to the past to see what our future holds, but we also have to allow for it to be dynamic. That's exactly what's going on. So for example, the gender gap in voting doesn't exist until the mid 1980s. So in fact, in 1960, uh, 1960, when it's Nixon v. Kennedy, who do you think women liked and who do you think men liked? Well, you have to say, purely from gut, women were Kennedy because he was younger and telegenic and men liked Nixon. But you're going to tell opposite. me that's all wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to tell you that that's just the opposite. Because who's the electorate in 1960? The electorate is super white. It's like 91% white in 1960 because you don't know the Voting Rights Act. That's when more than half of African-Americans who could be enfranchised were not systematically because of where they lived and because of the discriminatory policies that the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act the year before attempted to get rid of. We're still not rid of them, uh, those discriminatory policies, but at least we have federal laws on the books that match the 15th Amendment to the Constitution, which was passed in 1868. It was ratified in 1868. So my point here is that Women and men didn't show major differences. That election did, that men were uh, liked Kennedy quite a lot more than women did. So in other words, that men were more democratic. So we didn't see a gender gap. And of course, a gender gap is just the notion there's a difference between men and women overall and their support for candidates where women are more democratic. Now, that doesn't appear until the mid-80s. Now, why does that happen? Why does it appear? Is it like all these women just like ripped off their bras and said, I'm not voting Republican no more. To hell with the patriarchy. No, that's not what happened. What happened is women of color slowly and systematically enter the electorate. They are heavily democratic and they carry white women with them. They only make women look more democratic overall because in every of these other elections, white women are systematically more Republican than democratic. Women of color enter 20 years after the Voting Rights Act, and about the time that African-Americans are fully consolidated behind the Democratic Party and Latinas, Asian-Americans and women of other groups, other non-white minority groups enter the electorate, carry white women with them. Because women overall are more democratic. Why is that? Because women of color are almost 30% or 30% of the female electorate. In 1960, they were much smaller than that. I'm not sure of the number off the top of my head, but much smaller, a fraction of that. And when women of color, so heavily democratic as they are, particularly black women, black women are the power, they're the engine of the Democratic Party. And with them, adding their Latina, Asian American, Native American, multiracial sisters, they vote heavily democratic and they have never looked back. So dynamism in the population tells you everything that we don't know what's going to happen. This is a, I think we, we already had a realigning election. We're in the middle of it, though. Uh, you're reinforcing the reasons for the Republican Party in areas of the South and the Deep South to really engage in voter suppression, aren't you? Because oh, yeah. uh, the yeah. only way that they can maintain without going ostensibly back to uh, the law and, and changing and, and, and ripping it up is subtle and not so subtle voter suppression to make sure that those uh, districts that have overwhelming African-American Amer uh, majorities, that there aren't enough polls, there aren't enough people manning those polls. So you tacitly disencourage people from voting because they have to wait three hours, four hours just to cast their vote. That's exactly right. Or you have a, a single polling place or one ballot box or you alter the way that voter identification can be shown uh, and it's not just for people of color, it's for young people as well. 
Yep, yep. Happens all the times on college campuses. You're completely right. So what, what you've described is an evolution of the American electorate. Looking at this from a British perspective, we didn't have a Voters' Rights Act in, in the 1960s. Yes, the, the face of Britain has changed since 1948, and that really became manifest in the 1960s in terms of the amount of ethnic minorities there actually are within the United Kingdom. And it's about 13% of the United Kingdom's population is non-white. Traditionally, the UK electorate was very tribal. If you're working class, you voted Labour. If you were middle class and upper middle class, you voted Tory or Conservative, etc. What Margaret Thatcher did in a similar way to Reagan was kind of rip up that playbook. And what we've experienced in the United Kingdom in the last three, four election cycles is massive voter volatility. There's the, the famous red wall, which is um, the north of England is much more solidly Labour. And there's literally a wall of seats and uh, the, the Tories, the Conservatives captured a lot of those. We're experiencing large voter volatility in the United Kingdom. But it seems to me that you're not saying that's happening within the US. It's a, a gradual evolution and realignment of the core con constituent parts of the electorate. Would that be fair? I think that that's fair, but I don't know if it's an either or. And I think that what you experience with Brexit and, uh, and just across Europe, generally speaking, with the rise of conservative anti-immigrant groups and political movements is not dissimilar from what we have in the United States. So we are affected internally by our own dynamics of the population, but we're also affected, meaning the United States is also affected by global uh, circumstances, whether that's movement of global capital, which is obviously one of the big ones, as well as wars and other disruptions that create refugee populations and conditions in uh, late capitalism that drive these kinds of sentiments. So I think the United States has been, I mean, we think it's pretty volatile. Everybody's like seasick because things have been so choppy over here. And yet at the same time, I think that, you know, whenever you're in it, in the boat, you think it's really choppy. And I do think that it's a combination of both those internal dynamics, as well as the external factors that are, that are affecting um, worldwide, not just the United States. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Bombas. 
Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. More Americans voted for Hillary Clinton than for Donald Trump. More Americans voted for Democratic Senate candidates than for Republican Senate candidates. And in Trump, He's really unpopular. He's the most unpopular new president we have had since, well, since we invented polling. He's so unpopular that his inauguration is greeted with the largest single day of protests ever in American history. It's not gonna take long for Republicans to recognize that they're in some trouble too. They've lost the popular vote in six of the past seven elections. That has never happened for a political party before. And remember, Democrats should demand both that the media and Republicans take seriously the fact that Trump is governing without a majority or even a plurality of the American people behind him. There has been a lot of talk about normalizing Trump, but what's happening here is more fundamental. To ignore his poll numbers and act like the strongest possible version of Trump's agenda has been endorsed by most voters, it rehistoricizes Trump. It makes the election into something it wasn't. Oh, and this is less a question about polls per se, but with the national vote. The Democrats won the national vote last time out and in 2000. How important is it going to be for American democracy? Let's say Trump does win or that at least in terms of electoral college votes, he comes relatively close. So he loses, but he comes relatively close there. But in terms of national vote share, he's way beneath Biden. How important, or is it even important at all, that there is some kind of structural change with maybe the amount of states that there are, so there are more delegates for the Electoral College, etc. How important is it that the Democrats can overachieve on a national vote level, but underachieve in terms of Electoral College? How important is that for safeguarding American democracy going forward? It's important. So in other words, should... I mean, it's important for the facts, and these shall be even then, like the fact as to who wins the mm-hmm. electoral college as well as the popular vote or the national vote. All facts are contested in this age in, in the United States. All facts are being contested. And that was clearly stated by Trump during the debate. He would contest the outcome because he is not going to believe that it is a fact, the out, whatever that outcome is. But what you're asking And I think more generally is like, how is it that the public and how is it that institutions, American political institutions function if the outcome is close? It's much more difficult to see a path forward that's not disruptive without a very decisive vote, both on the popular vote as well as the Electoral College. One way we could alter the system that we have in the U.S. without really doing anything constitutionally. In fact, we would need to do nothing constitutionally. Instead, we states would have to alter the way in which they calculate and give away their electoral college votes. So, for example, if Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, just three states that were lost by Clinton, relatively close margins, if those states had a proportional system of the distribution of their electoral college votes, we wouldn't be having this conversation. We would be having a conversation about Hillary Clinton getting elected uh, versus another Republican candidate. What's at stake here is that it isn't required by the United States Constitution 
that states are winner take all. In fact, there are two states that are not winner take all. Mm. That's Nebraska and New Hampshire. So if all of the states or other states decided that they would distribute their electoral college votes as a proportion of the popular vote in their state, we wouldn't be having this conversation now. We wouldn't have had the 2000 election and we would have outcomes where the electoral college was very similar to or exactly the same as the outcome from the popular vote. Do you think that regardless of the outcome of this election, whether it's a clear victory for Biden or a narrow victory for Biden in the Electoral College, do you think there, there needs to be this political will on the side of the Democrats when they get through in the next administration to put pressure on the states to, to make this change? Well, it's not only the Democrats, the Republicans don't want it either. And that's the problem with the two-party system that we have in the U.S. Because if you're California, Californians don't want to give up their 55 electoral college votes to California Democrats. So Democratic Party didn't want to give it up either. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a game. Uh, in, in game theory, it has to be like everybody does it or nobody gets it. Sort of like, uh, I can't remember the name of the game. But the idea is that if everybody doesn't participate um, and there's a few states who don't participate then you could be down, right? You could be down worse than you are now. So it's a catch-22 problem, but somebody has to take the leadership to do it. One more of these elections like this, this is 20th century business too. We're talking there's several of these prior to the 20th century, but this is 2000, 2016. If 20 becomes another year like that, Republicans don't want to change it. They want to take their Mississippis and Texases and the other Southern Arkansas, states. Arkansas, yeah. Arkansas, I mean, Georgia's pretty close this time. So that's Mm. interesting, as is even South Carolina. So uh, it could be to their advantage. As you know, all political parties attempt to continue to maximize the control and the power that they have. So it's just a rational game for them to stick with what they already know and have. The fact that it has to take these catastrophes to drive the potential for change is problematic at best. It's interesting you call it a a catastrophe. You could make a, a strong argument that in 2000, America's institutions were stress tested and actually um, America passed that test. Um, Gore abided by the decision of the Supreme Court and to, in large part, the Democrats didn't bitch afterwards, did they? You know, there's a bit of bitching, but this has not been institutional and generational bitching and nothing like the way that Donald Trump is now talking about stolen and rigged elections. The Democrats and and Al Gore didn't, for the duration of the Bush tenure, continually harp on about that election. Nor did Clinton, right? Hillary Clinton accepted the outcome twice in living memory for even the Mm 18-year-olds. Yeah, the Democratic Party has played by the rules. Messed up as those rules may be, they did it twice. Absolutely. So, but it, but it's interesting though that it's happened twice. But if it's going to happen a third time, nobody is wholesalely saying that America has the institutions to safeguard against a repeat performance a third time. Though, <sighs> I don't know if nobody's saying that, um, but I'm not sure. I think it'll depend on when it happens. You know, it's like. You say to your kid, if you spill your milk one more time, you're hoping that he's not going to do it because the two times he's done it before, you got pretty hard on him. But, but this time, who knows? You know, maybe this time you do. Maybe it won't happen this time. I think that the, the thing that 
leaves me less confident in the institutions. The institutions have been so eroded and not necessarily by, you know, the people who've long time worked in the institutions, but that the erosion is occurring from political appointees who have altered systematically how those institutions work. And chief among them is the Department of Justice. I mean, that is uh, Department of Justice. There's even the, you know, National Security Agency, the Central Intelligence Agency, many of these locations of what have long time been considered uh, kind of stable FBI, stable locations that are to be uh, insulated to some degree from political appointees and political whims have shown a deterioration all their own and much more rapidly than in other places. And so therefore, I think that's what gives me a little bit of pause this time in you know doing the big rah-rah institutions will handle it, ditto for the Supreme Court given the composition at present. Mm. Just to wrap up and just to go back specifically to, to polling, I think all seasoned political watchers know that, you know, you don't look at uh, how California or the state of Oregon votes to see uh, the outcome of uh, a presidential election. You know, it really does boil down to Ohio, Pennsylvania, et cetera, et cetera. There's a handful of states you had to narrow in on one state, which would be the state that we should all watch on the evening of the election to see how it votes, to understand how America is going to vote, what state would that be and why? Florida. I mean, Florida has been contested a long time. Florida's also got issues with, because it's a very close state. So that'll tell you, I think, quite a lot about what the outcome will be. But other states, I might look to, for example, Arizona. Mm-hmm. I might look to Pennsylvania. And I might even you know, look to states that uh, just to see how big the win will be if it goes to Biden. So Florida is the true bellwether state. It's a very uh, racially diverse state, but it's also a long time been controlled by Republicans. Just one quick thing, you know, California has not always been a blue state. Oregon, too. California only goes blue with Clinton. Prior to that, it's red as red. I mean, it's where Reagan comes from. Reagan mm-hmm. comes from here. Um, California's always been, and Nixon, indeed, those are yeah. two, our two, mm-hmm. uh, our two presidents from California. So all of these states are changing. I mean, Pennsylvania was long, long time uh, blue. Texas, you know, all of these other Texas is uh, was reliably Democratic, obviously, before 1964 because of the, uh, you know, whites controlled Texas. So I would say Florida for the outcome. You know, is it Biden or Trump? And other locations, I'm going to say, I, I'm very curious about Arizona. I am wondering about South Carolina. And I think Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin will be interesting to see how big the uh, victory is for either candidate. So there, you want to look at the states for different things. And I think Florida's tight. Um, and I, I'm, I'm just kind of sick of looking at Florida, but that is, uh, I think that's where a lot of the action is. I like that. Sick of looking at Florida, but it's where a lot of the action is. Jane, Jen, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic and explaining the the changing sands of the American electorate over time and where specifically we should be looking for early uh, for the early winds of change uh, for in terms of how America is going to vote in in November. 
I know that you have a couple of books penned to your name, or three in, in particular, uh, but specifically, um, are you publishing your works anywhere online? Where can people catch up with you if they, if they so want to, Jane? Well, let's see. Uh, a lot of people like to look at this article called The Trump Majority, and it helps to explain why, or it helps to explain the phenomenon of white women voting Republican. It's uh, published in a journal called Politics, Groups, and Identities. And I think it's just floating around out there online. It's called The Trump Majority. It's from 2017. I have a recent article in Political Research Quarterly. These are all egghead journals, you know, academic journals, but it's about Asian American voters and how Asian American voters are quite democratic, heavily democratic. A lot of um, stereotypes put Asian Americans as being much more Republican. They have been in the past. They're much more democratic now. And um, I have a new, a new piece also on white identity, why it is that whites and how we might understand white identity in the political context. And I don't just mean the pointy hat, pointy white starch robe kind of white identity, but other white identity too that might drive people to recognize their privilege as white versus other minority groups. So those are some pieces out there. Um, I'm not really active on social media. I figure you can find me if you want to. And you can find me at the University of Southern California.edu. Smashing. Well, well, there you go, folks. That's that's where you go and find her. I would love to have you back on again and talk about white identity as a, a black Brit, as a black Englishman. I always remark on the fact that people of color have to qualify their American uh, identity by being hyphenated. Whereas mm -hmm. there's no such thing as an English American. You know, they're just American. That's right. They're just American. I can't tell you how many times, I mean, I was born in the United States to immigrant parents. I was born in the, the deep South, mm -hmm. I know, um, and raised in uh, the Midwest, Michigan, in fact. And everywhere I go, less so today because I live in California now, but everywhere I go, I could be on a plane going anywhere and someone will be, well, where are you from? And I say, well, I'm from California or I'm from Michigan, they'll say, no, where are you from? You know, giving you the elbow, like, where are your people from? And so to be American, I can't just say I'm American. I have to say that I'm Asian American. Mm -hmm. And then I have to say I'm Korean American. So yes, exactly. I don't know that Trump would define himself as... Um, Scottish American, he doesn't. Scottish or, yeah, exactly. Or German. No, he doesn't. Um, yeah. Sometimes Joe Biden calls himself an Irish Catholic, and that's interesting. I mm -hmm. think that that is... Uh, previously at other periods of time in the United States, a term of derision, yep. which he is now then turned. But you are so right that white Americans, even if you're an immigrant, give me some famous guy who's English. I'm going to give you Arlo White. I always think of him because he's like a commentator on NBC Sports for mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the uh, English Premier League. Yeah. He comes here. Let's say he immigrates to the United States. Or Rebecca Lowe, she's the one who does like some of these commentaries for whatever. She lives in mm -hmm. Connecticut. You're not going to ask her, like, unless she opens her mouth or unless Arlo White opens her mouth, they're not going to say an English American. Yeah. Like, are their kids born here? They would just be American by the Absolutely. color of their skin and by the fact that they match the default category. Because when you close your eyes and, and say to somebody, imagine what an American looks like. Do this in England. People would be like, well, he's wearing white sneakers and a baseball cap and he's a tourist, right? But he's definitely a white guy. Yeah. Um, you don't, when you say, think of an American, nobody says LeBron James, right? Even though LeBron is as American as that white mm. tourist, maybe more so.
So it, it goes back to the fact that white is the founding trait. It's our default category and everybody practices it. It's a huge mm-hmm. problem. Yeah, no, we, we, we all do. We all do. About 10 years ago or so, I was listening to Condoleezza Rice speak and she said that um, African Americans are one of the foundational peoples of America. And I went, hmm. And then pushing that on forward, um, a very eminent black thinker uh, made the point, which utterly floored me. And he said, African Americans have been in the United States since 1619. However, there are many peoples who have come afterwards who see themselves purely as American and we are not. And, and that gave me utter pause for thought. Italian Americans, you know, that, that wave of immigration starts in the 1880s. You know, even German Americans, it's in the 1830s. And I, I was utterly floored by that. You know, there is utterly no way to argue against that very salient and very obvious point that African-Americans are on the next boat after the Mayflower, literally the next boat. But they're still seen in many uh, departments as being not quite American, um, begrudgingly American, begrudgingly, a bit of a problem. Jane, John, we're going to have to have you back on. I love your dry... Your dry manner, uh, which you've delivered uh, a lot, a lot of your answers. Um, uh, we'll, we'll definitely have to have you back on again. Uh, don't forget, folks. Um, we are the podcast where we um, look at left or centre politics because it is right thinking politics. Uh, but we're not slavish in that view. We do like to challenge our right-leaning brethren and try and show them the light. Um, I've got to say a special thanks to Laura Jackson, who's helped to produce this show. So big ups to you, Laura. And she's working very hard as she travels all around uh, America in her RV with her little dog. Uh, but thank you for finding Jane for us today. You can catch up with the podcast Um online where midatlanticshow.com is the website you can see all the previous shows obviously you listen to a podcast now you, we're on your podcatcher but please write us a review if you're enjoying our output again this is me Rothwell Brown signing out thank you bye bye thank you Jane imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with bowl and branches organic cotton sheets in a recent customer survey 96 percent replied that bowl and branch sheets get softer with every wash start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come try their sheets with a 30 night guarantee plus get 15 percent off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands and they partner with factories that prioritize safe ethical and responsible manufacturing I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 